Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One of the things that I'm so proud of is that young kids would come up to me from so many different backgrounds and say, seeing you run for prime minister makes me feel like I can do anything. Welcome to a very special episode of Deconstructed. I'm Mehdi Hassan. From the US to the UK, from France to Australia, the Western world has been torn apart in recent years by bitter divisions over race, immigration, and yes, Islam. Canada has seemed to be the one holdout, resisting the rise of nationalists and populists, and praised, celebrated even, as a liberal multicultural utopia. But is it really? Or is there a darker side to America's nice northern neighbor? I went to the Hot Docs Podcast Festival in Toronto to find out, and in the wake of last month's federal elections, sat down in front of a live audience with two of the most prominent figures in Canadian politics. Former refugee-turned-immigration minister Ahmed Hussein... Opening your doors to people from around the world is not just a nice thing to do, it's a smart economic policy to have. And the Sikh leader of the New Democratic Party, Jagmeet Singh. While during the campaign we've seen the Liberal Party campaign like they care about people, they don't govern that way. So does Canada, the land of free healthcare, legal marijuana and lots of immigrants, really deserve its reputation as a progressive paradise? If you're not Canadian, you probably know at least one Canadian politician, this guy. Canada is a country that was built by immigration. We know that this has been the story of Canada. Yes, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, son of iconic former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, who took office in Ottawa with his Liberal Party back in 2015. The handsome, eloquent, youthful new face of Western progressivism. No, not Justin Bieber, it's Justin Trudeau, Canada's new Prime Minister in his prime. Trudeau is seen as something of a political golden boy. He's, he's young, he's charismatic, he's a feminist. Handsome, charismatic, progressive, the new darling of the progressive world community. Fast forward, though, to September 2019. Many were shocked when pictures of the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau emerged, showing him in blackface. This is something I deeply, deeply regret. Yesterday, Trudeau apologized again after more images emerged. Trudeau came out to apologize for one blackface and ended up admitting to more. When pressed by reporters about just how many times he addressed in blackface, Trudeau refused to answer. The Trudeau blackface story got quite a lot of attention south of the border. It was simple, digestible, social media ready and completely intelligible to a US audience given our own recent history of political blackface scandals. Thank you, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. And it hit the news just weeks before the Canadian federal election, in which the country had to decide whether or not Trudeau would hold on to the top job. 
An election story that didn't get play in the U.S., though, was Quebec's controversial Bill 21. The government of Quebec passed a law this weekend prohibiting some public servants from wearing religious symbols on the job. Bill 21, passed by the Quebec provincial government back in June, imposes a quote-unquote religiously neutral dress code on state employees in the province. That is, it bans public workers in positions of prominence school teachers, judges, police officers, from wearing hijabs or yarmulkes or turbans on the job, which has left many residents of Quebec, especially Muslim women, feeling like they're no longer welcome there. We can't simply put our identity on a shelf and come and come to our jobs. No, whether I wore my hijab or not, I'm still the same teacher. Bill 21 became a big issue in the Canadian election campaign during the fall and led to clashes between Prime Minister Trudeau and his rival to the left, Jagmeet Singh, leader of the New Democratic Party, or NDP. I am the only one on the stage who has said, yes, a federal government might have to intervene on this. You didn't say that you would possibly intervene. You didn't even leave the door open, and that's not Let's be honest for a second here. Every single day of my life, is fighting a bill like Bill 21. So why every won't single you day fight of my it life, if you form government? Is, every single day of my life is challenging people who think that you can't do things because of the way you look. Every single day of my life, I channel the frustrations of people who feel that as well, that many people across our country who are told that they can't achieve what they want because of how they look. So why I'm not running to become prime minister of this country? I'm going to come back and telling people I want to be to your prime minister. It. Trudeau scraped back into office last month, but lost his parliamentary majority and will now lead a minority Liberal government. He'll need the support of the left-wing NDP, which, despite a lively and energetic campaign by its leader, Jagmeet Singh, lost 15 of its seats during the election. So last week, I went to Toronto to talk to Singh, the first Sikh and first person of colour ever to lead a major Canadian political party. But first... I spoke to Ahmed Hussein. Hussein arrived in Canada in the 90s as a teenaged Muslim refugee from war-torn Somalia and eventually rose to become immigration minister. Yeah, immigration minister in the Trudeau government. With a backstory like that, who better to discuss Canada's reputation as a seemingly shining beacon of Western multiculturalism? It's a pleasure to be here in Toronto at the Hot Docs Podcast Festival for a special live edition of Deconstructed. We are talking tonight about immigration, Islamophobia, racism, multiculturalism, refugees, borders, all the good stuff. With two very special guests, two of Canada's best-known politicians. My first guest tonight is Canada's Minister for Immigration, Citizenship and Refugees. He is a lawyer, an MP, he was former president of the Canadian Somali Congress. He's a former refugee himself. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Honorable Ahmed Hussein. <laughs> Ahmed Hussein, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you. Great to be here in your country, in your city. Congratulations on your very close victory in last month's elections. Thank you. There was a very, very close race between the third place uh, finisher and the second place finisher, so <laughs> I didn't have a lot of problems. So. It, was a bit it, of a weird, it was a bit of a weird victory. You lost your majority in Parliament. You lost the popular vote to the Conservatives. 
You're basically Donald Trump to the Conservatives as Hillary Clinton, aren't you? I'm just saying, in terms, of, in terms of winning power despite losing the popular vote, I'm just saying. Well, I, th <laughs> I, think, I think we have a, a strong minority government. I, I think the message we got from Canadians is that they expect us to work with everyone in Parliament, making sure that uh, we tackle the very, very real issues that, uh, that have preoccupied Canadians. And, and, uh, and, and we are the first to acknowledge that we don't have all the answers. So, What went wrong for your party? Why did so many Canadians lose faith in Justin Trudeau, this once popular prime minister? Well, I think, look, I, I would say that... Uh, I'm very proud of the record that uh, we've been able to achieve over the last uh, four years. Uh, of course, better is always possible, but I can tell you just the, the amount of stuff we were able to get done. Um, I, I have seen it on the ground, uh, you know, the number of children that we were able to lift out of poverty, the number of Canadians who are working now. And I'm, are, I'm not disputing that, I'm just wondering, so how, why did that not translate into a big victory? It's, it's tough because, uh, you know, it's always a challenge when you are, uh, you know, when you have a record to defend, uh, you're dealing with, with a lot of false information uh, uh, floating in the universe. You know, there was a guy sitting in Buffalo sending stuff to Canada uh, that was completely false about everything under the sun. And, and, and the, the current structures that we have simply couldn't do anything about that. So you're dealing with is, with... is Canada more divided now than ever before? I, I think this election campaign was 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 a very uh, was a very um, in, in some ways it was uglier than I've ever seen. It was it was very d divisive, uh, and I think that it's fair to say that everyone has ha had a role in that. And I think now, uh, up, you know, looking back, it's it's important for all of us to reflect on how we could have uh, we how we all contributed to that environment and, and how we can do better as a country. What is the plan now? You've ruled out a coalition government with the new Democratic Party, with the with an NDP. Is it, you talked about a strong minority government. Isn't that a contradiction in terms? No, it's not. It, it just means that what, what Canadians expect us to do, look, when you listen to Canadians, you can never go wrong. And what they've told us is we expect you to work with every a parliamentarian in the House of Commons to make sure that you address the issues that matter. Uh, majority of Canadians voted for strong action now against uh, climate change. So why not form a coalition to do that? Wouldn't that be easier? Well, I think that, uh, you know, what matters is how you reach across the aisle and work on issues as they come along and, and work together to get things done. I think the, the majority of Canadians voted for pharmacare. The majority of Canadians voted for uh, an activist government that continues to invest in them. I think that we can agree with many of our friends uh, across the aisle, and I think that is the, the agenda that we've... You are going to be relying on your NDP friends across the we'll aisle to get some on, of this stuff through. We'll rely on all parliamentarians to get the job done, depending on what the policies are, but I, I, I suspect on, on a lot of these issues, for example, on pharmacare, yeah. I, I think our uh, NDP colleagues would be supportive of that, because they, they also want pharmacare to be done now, and, and we had already started some of that work. I've got to ask about an issue that dominated a lot of the election campaign. As one of the most senior and high-profile black politicians in Canada, what was your reaction when that first image of Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, your boss, appeared in yep. blackface, yep. which dominated global headlines in the United States? Yep. It was everywhere yep. when I switched on the TV in the US. Yep. What was your reaction it's, that day? 
Before I answer the question, I, I heard I heard some laughter in the, in the audience. That that's it, it's a very serious issue. I don't I don't think it was a funny issue, and I think it's uh, you know my first reaction was one of disappointment. The images were were disappointing to me and to many people. Um, I think that from my perspective, and again I can't speak for anyone else. I can speak for myself. Um, I have. I, I took the time to reflect on this and, and to to compare the images to the to the four years of uh, my experience working with this uh, individual and making sure that I was able to recollect and reflect on all the work that I had done with Justin Trudeau on engaging the black community, delivering unprecedented investments uh, on, on, on black uh, on black issues. Making, I mean, the first sitting prime minister in Canada to, to acknowledge systemic racism as a reality in Canada, uh, acknowledging and, and committing Canada to the UN decade for people of African descent. This is not a, an empty commitment. The, once Canada signed on to the UN decade for people of African descent, it comes with deliverables that you have to deliver. Uh, I chose to, to to look at that and and did you the, do that the, in a, the, did you do that in a vacuum or did he call you up did he talk no, to he, you he called we had a conversation he called me what up. did he, he say was, he was kind enough to call me ahead of the release of the images in the media oh and, well you had a heads up you knew it was coming out yes you know he, he called me shortly before and 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 you know we had a conversation and I can tell you that uh, one of the things that I contrast with with everything else that happens in this country is the fact that he that he exercised leadership enough to come out unequivocally to, to apologize to those who were hurt by those images and to use that experience to do better mm. on, on issues, the real issues of systemic racism that really need to be tackled in Canada. And I think one of the things that uh, I regret about the aftermath of that was how the media really focused on him and the images which... I mean, there, there were there were three images. They were I think. going to do. There that. were three images, right? They were going to do that, but what? But what I was hoping to to happen yeah. after that was for us in Canada to finally have a long overdue conversation about systemic racism. Yes. That you know, to ask ourselves, does the civil service of Canada, for example, or the civil service of Ontario, does it look like? Ontario, so I want to talk right? about that tonight with you, but I do, just want to get do our institutions and our yeah, yeah. corporate boards and look I, like. And Canada. I want to talk about those, that with those you tonight. Are the kinds of things that I wanted, and we want to have that. To, we want to have that conversation. And I don't tonight. think the media did that. The media didn't do that. I guess partly because it wasn't just one image, right? It was three images. Did he tell you that when he called you up that there were multiple images, or was it just the first one? No, he look. I, I mean, he really committed to he, blackface. He, 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 I know, he called. It's not me, funny, he, but. No, it's again, very weird that there were so many images. No, no. Again, uh, as I said, you know, um, I think it's 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 human to err, but it, it takes a leader to own up to to the mistakes and to 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 apologize to those who were hurt by those images and to to commit uh, sincerely to learn from that experience and and, and, dub and double down on more work against systemic racism. That's not something that I've seen in a lot of other instances in which that has happened. So, and, his, and his reputation is, is being rebuilt, do you think? Has he done enough to win back well, trust? Well, I, I think, from, again, from my perspective, my engagement with the black community after that and, yeah. and, and, and the knocking on doors with, with my own constituents and, and some of the young folks that I, I spoke to, they chose to focus on the record. They said, you know, we want him to come back because he's been the most progressive prime minister. And he's, he's taken a clear stand against racism and intolerance and, and bigotry in this country. And so 
we okay. are going to judge him on his record and we want him to come back. Okay. That's the sense that I got. When I last interviewed you, it was late 2017. It was Donald Trump's first year in office. Have things, it was your first year in office, have things got better or worse on issues around race relations, immigration, uh, these kind of the debate about quote-unquote populism, uh, nationalism, in the West, in not just in Canada, but across the West from your vantage point? Have things got worse? I think we're at a point where, I, you know, it's not that monolithic, right? You have to, when you're talking about immigration, when you're talking about responses uh, by countries to refugee issues, there is the national uh, noise, and then there are amazing leaders at the municipal level and community leaders in places like France and Italy who are, who are really, really open mm. to opening their hearts and their homes to, to the most vulnerable. So we got to give those folks credit as well. Mm. Some of the most amazing uh, creative work on refugee integration and providing homes to the most vulnerable is being carried out by cities around the world. They're meeting... Uh, to, to, to work together on those issues. And, and they are working with Canada in many ways on that. And, and that's what I choose to focus on. The other thing that I, that I want to tell your listeners is we chose, you know, every country has the right to decide on their own immigration policies. But we wanted to prove in Canada that you can, that first of all, that, you know, welcoming others and opening your doors to, 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 to people from around the world is not just a nice thing to do. It's a smart economic policy to have. That it is in your best interest to actually attract the best and the brightest from around the world and actually allow everyone to contribute, including refugees. Secondly, that you can, be, you can avoid the temptation to fearmonger your way to power and build walls and instead choose to do the difficult thing to trust your fellow human being and build bridges through the world and have an, a smart and open immigration policy and win elections. And you know what? In Canada, we've done that. And I'm proud of that fact. You've, we, we wanted you've been to, praised. We, we you've wanted been... to take an unapologetic, opposite approach to those who so build walls to others. So, let's, let, and, me, and, so let me pick up on that. And we've proven that it can work. Uh, globe, you have been praised globally uh, for your welcoming stance on immigration. Back in 2015, uh, Justin Trudeau grabbed headlines by turning up at the airport to personally welcome uh, Syrian refugees. I think 40,000 came in after that. Um, but some would say that Canada's changed. And I want to see what your take on that is. It, actually, the Canadian, so, not just Canadian public opinion on refugees has changed, but even the government that you're the min immigration minister in has toughened up its attitude. Earlier this year, I believe your government asked the United States government to amend a 15-year-old border treaty, the Safe Third Country Agreement, between your two countries. So, Why did you do that? Uh, when you say we've changed, that's news to me because in 2018, Canada welcomed the most refugees in the, in the Western world, more than the United States of America, a country that has 10 times our population. I mean, uh, if Trump's we, your benchmark, it's not no, the greatest no, 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 achievement. It's not, it's not just Trump. It's not just Trump. It's England, it's okay, uh, fair, France. Fair enough, fair enough. Western, but you, you, you said know, the US, G7. Like, I'm talking about the, the US G7. The US is trying to come down to zero just, right no, now. No, no, so. I'm talking about the G7. Okay, so, so we, deal with the question I asked Canada, about. No, deal with the Canada, question Canada has it. not, Canada, the generosity of Canadians So why are you trying to amend, this, why are you trying to amend this treaty that refugee groups and others in this country are criticizing you for? The, so I'll, I'll come back to the Safe Third Country Agreement in a second. Okay. But the generosity of Canadians has actually increased 
towards refugees. Even though I'm seeing a poll and saying 57% of Canadians, according to a recent poll, said they didn't want the country to take in any more refugees. That's there, a scary the, number. There was a poll, there was, there was some issues with that poll, but there was a poll last week that showed that 64% of Canadians okay. do not think that we take in uh, too many immigrants. Okay. So, so, the, so again... 77% you know, of polls are made up. That's a, that's a snapshot no, in time. We have different polls, which is why we but shouldn't look, rely on polls. Look, uh, for, first of all, the 40,000 Syrian yes. refugees, we were able to do that uh, from November uh, 4th, 2015 to February 29, 2016. We've since welcomed total of more than 60,000 Syrian refugees. So I'm, so I'm uh, saying yeah. people are giving you credit for that. I've given right. you credit for that. All I'm asking is people are saying they're detecting changes and they're pointing to, for example, this treaty with the US where you're saying to the US, you take these people back, they're not going to come and claim no, the asylum No, the treaty has here. always been there. Uh, yeah. th this is a, a treaty that was signed in 2004. I want to make it clear. It's not a treaty that is designed to deny asylum. It's absolutely not. In fact... Canada, one of the things that I'm very proud of is in the last four years, we have made sure that we have abided by our international obligations to protect the most vulnerable. That, uh, you know, when you talk about the messaging in the past, we've kept up the principle that, uh, you know, if, if you're facing persecution and you need protection, Canada will, will provide that protection okay. for you. So, uh, so the treaty is about the, the orderly management of asylum seekers on both sides of, of the border. You know, it's a 14-year-old uh, But you're agreement. pushing for it to be hardened up for the Americans. No, we, we're pushing. Look, we talk about a lot of things. I mean, it's called a safe third country agreement. Yes. Do you believe a country where the president puts kids in cages and tries to build a moat filled with snakes and alligators is a safe third country for okay. refugees? That's an easy answer. That's it. What is it? Is it an easy that's, answer? No, no, that's an easy answer to say. I mean, we, we, our position on that is very clear. I, I think... Putting children in cages is absolutely no. Is it a safe wrong. third it is, country? It is absolutely is it unacceptable. Look, you know, you. you, the, you the said problem, it was really simple. No, is it a no, safe the, third the country? The difficulty, Mary, is you're asking me questions. Yeah. And you know, these these questions uh, need answers that are well thought of. The the United States. The, the you want a yes or no answer? Yes, right? I do. The, the fact is, the United okay. States, uh, the safe third country agreement, obligates both of us. Okay to monitor each other, to make sure that we have analysis on our domestic asylum system. That analysis is ongoing. A lot of the measures that the U.S. administration has, has announced are, have not been implemented yet. Some of them are, are being challenged in, in court. It is, you know, there's a very strong, robust debate happening in the United States, and it's not for a Canadian immigration minister to, to determine what the American policy should be. But what I'll say is, we're monitoring that situation closely, but we are committed to making sure that uh, we abide by our international obligations. And the Safe Third Country Agreement actually places a duty on Canada to monitor the United States to make sure that they are doing that as well. Okay, we're running out of time. I just want to say, it's not just in Trump's America where there are hate crimes on the rise or white nationalists marching in the open. Uh, here in Canada, you had the horrific terrorist attack in the mosque in Quebec in 2017. Hate crimes, I believe, increased by 50% between 2015 and 2017. I believe the number of hate groups, according to one study, is like 300 right now. How much do these numbers concern you? Oh, very much so. I mean, and in fact, I think one of the things that uh, I was very much concerned about, and we all were, was that we didn't want the election that just passed to give life to those who would peddle fear-mongering and try to, to turn Canadians against newcomers and, and immigrants and refugees. And I'm so happy. 
uh, by the fact that my faith in Canadians, the fact that Canadians have uh, the resilience of Canadians to, to, to I, that kind of fear-mongering. But what are you as a government, are you taking concrete steps to oh, fight uh, white for nationalism? Sure, of course. I mean, we, we have taken um, a lot of steps, which I, I can't all get into now, yeah. but we strengthened the, uh, the, the investments to protect houses of worship. We have uh, made sure that uh, you know we, we we work with with our partners to hold uh, s social media platforms to account for some of this hateful. Uh, and it's easy to identify uh, kind of the white nationalist threat. My always worry is that even among some liberals, it's not just kind of right wingers who are blind to what's going on. There's a sense of not quite getting how bad things are getting for minority communities, for example, Muslims uh, in a country like Canada today. Do you view Bill 21 in Quebec, this so-called religious neutrality law, which bans the wearing of religious symbols, including, of course, the hijab, among others, um, by judges, teachers, civil servants. Do you view that law to be Islamophobic? Any uh, state that tries to tell people what to wear, especially when they wear what they're wearing because of their faith, is 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 basic. There's no the state has no business telling people what to wear. But do you think that we, law was made? That what I'm wondering clear. is, do you think that as, as a Muslim uh, minister in the in the federal I, government, I don't I don't agree with that law. I, was it, I, I get that you don't agree I, with I, it. I'm so, saying, was it driven? Do you think by anti-Muslim animus? That will become clear based on what happens in the court because there there the are many folks in in Quebec who are uh, using the opportunity to 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 protect their charter rights as they should. Uh, and, and we're looking at that, but you know, the state has no business telling people what to wear. But it is uh, an example are, of Islam. But it is an example of Islamophobia, is it not? It's an example of the state trying to tell people how to practice their religion. But why? Which is, which but is why? Ridiculous. Because of Islamophobia. I, I'm not sure what motivates the the, the government of Quebec to, not to pass. This not just the government. Other people are pushing it. You must say some of them are Islamophobes, even if not all of them are. Well, I mean, there there, there are folks who support uh, measures against uh, against them. And will your government be taking? You just, you just have to look at my Twitter page or yeah. my Facebook comments to. To determine that there will always be that uh, you know small fraction of, of folks in, in our society who are Islamophobic, that's that's a fact. Will yeah. your government be taking action to stop the bill? We are so basically right now because the the matter is before the court. There, there are folks who are challenging the the matter in Quebec's courts, and uh, Justin Trudeau is the only federal leader, and our team is the only team that has left the door open for intervention uh, yes. at the right time. And, and of course that, and we've taken a clear position against that law. We're way over on time, but I want to ask one last question. You are a black Muslim, former refugee from Somalia who came to this country, I believe age 16 years old. You have risen to become Minister of Immigration of all titles. I often say you can't make this stuff up. Um, <laughs> do you think this story of yours could have happened in any other Western country, or do you believe it's a Canada-specific story? I think it's a Canada-specific story, and I think it's because um, Canada is the only country in which uh, five individuals from the audience or an organization, a private organization, can sponsor a refugee or refugee family. We've had that program for the last 40 years, and as a result of the, priv uh, the Canadian privately sponsored refugee program, uh, we've been able to welcome 350,000 people into Canada who otherwise wouldn't have had protection. Now, if there's one thing that I wish I did more is to export that Canadian model to the rest of the world because I think there's many communities in which they would love to have that framework. I don't think Canadians are any more generous than, than, than French people or Germans or Americans, but I think you know, when, when an American watches 
uh, a refugee crisis and sees horrific images, uh, they don't, you know, the, the best thing that they can do is. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Maybe donate the next day to the American Red Cross. They don't have any other framework to help those individuals, to get them to safety. But what a Canadian can do is get off their couch, get together with four other Canadians, and sponsor that refugee. That's an amazing, amazing Canadian invention. And I think if there's one thing that really drives me crazy about Canadian modesty is we should be less modest and celebrate that and export that to the rest of the world. We'll have to leave it there. Ahmed Hussein, thanks for coming on Deconstructed. That was Ahmed Hussein, immigration minister, member of parliament, member of the liberal government. My next guest is also a member of parliament, is a former criminal defense lawyer, a martial artist, and the first person of color and Sikh to lead a major Canadian political party. Please welcome the leader of the New Democratic Party, the NDP, Jagmeet Singh. Thank you. Jagmeet Singh, thanks for coming on Deconstructed. Thank you. Um, you ran what even your critics concede was a rather brilliant campaign, uh, charismatic campaign. The polls show that you won the debates, the leaders' debates. Some of the polls showed that you were the most popular of the three party leaders, major party leaders. And yet you ended the election with fewer votes and fewer seats than you did four years ago. What went wrong? Uh, I think a lot of people voted out of fear. I think that was a, a big a challenge for us. There was a, a lot of momentum, and I, and I want to give credit. I mean, I tried to do my best during the campaign, but I want to give credit to the fact that our goal in the campaign was to make it about people. And I've met with so many Canadians that have so many fears and worries, a lot of young people that are worried about the future of the planet. And our goal was to make sure that the campaign reflected the stories that we heard from people. And I think that was the success of the campaign. It wasn't really me. It was really the focus on but people. But when you say the success of the campaign, clearly as a campaign, as something to witness and behold, yes. But when you come out 15 seats fewer than you had last time round, you got a massive applause when you walked in here. People in Toronto like you. You won not a single seat in Toronto. <laughs> 
It's tougher. You couldn't clap to that one, right? You were like, they were getting ready to clap. <laughs> they were getting ready to clap. And then you're like, but I'm just asking about the disconnect. There seems no, to no, be a disconnect. I mean, the, you the do disconnect must see is this. I mean, on your travel. Uh, yeah, a couple of things. I mean, we, we, we are, I'm proud of the fact that we are funded by people, by the love of, of people who believe in a brighter future and who want to dream big. Uh, the other parties have a lot deeper pockets. They're establishment parties, the old boys club. They've got a lot more money than us. And in the last week of the campaign, they were able to drive home a message of fear uh, to make people afraid to vote the way they wanted. And we saw a lot of results where people really were hoping to vote a certain way and they changed their mind up until the last moment because they were afraid of conservatives. And I'm hoping that in the future, I know people are afraid of conservatives. I'm afraid of the fact that they want to cut... <laughs> I get that, uh, but I don't think in life you can achieve anything big or, or meaningful if you do things out of fear. The only way to change the world is to do something out of hope, okay. and that's what I hope. But here's what's interesting, just as a, some context for our global audience listening in. Um, the Liberal Party, we were just talking to Ahmed Hussein, didn't win a majority. They are uh, for, tr forming a minority government. They've ruled out a coalition with your party. But you're still in a good position as a kind of kingmaker because to get legislation through, as Ahmed Hussein was just telling me, they will need NDP votes on economic issues, climate change issues, issues where your party and his party are much more aligned than the Conservatives are. So that puts you in a pretty good position. What are you hoping to get out of that? Well, one thing is, is that while during the campaign we've seen the Liberal Party and, and Liberal Prime Ministers uh, campaign like they care about people, they don't govern that way. And so my job is going to be... Hold them to account. Yeah, my job is, is, not, is not that... I mean, if we relied on what they said during the campaign, it sounds like we agree on a lot of things. But the reality is they don't govern that way and they haven't governed that way. So I'm really going to fight hard. I don't believe that their centrist approach is going to solve the housing crisis. So it's not going to solve the problems. Are you disappointed that Trudeau ruled out a coalition? Would you quite like to have been in a coalition? Well, my goal is I don't really care the form that it takes. I care about the results. And I really want to no, push things forward. But if you're a minister and you and your people have ministers in government, you'll get to exercise more power. That's just a reality. It, that's, it, to me, it also, wasn't Also, if wasn't you the were format. former minister, I could get to see you and Donald Trump have a meeting, which would be fun, just for me. Um, that, just that on a side note. I have that martial arts training, so I should be all right. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, but, but in all seriousness, I mean this very seriously. I was open to any format to, to, build, to be able to deliver on the things that matter yeah. to me. So I believe in not just talking about pharmacare. I want to make sure that there's a national, single-payer, publicly funded pharmacare for all. I believe, which is, not what, which is not what the liberals have said. They've said that they care about some sort of pharmacare. They haven't said that they're willing to take on the pharmaceutical industry. sound a bit like a certain industry. senator from Vermont back where I live. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, have you spoken to Justin Trudeau since the election about what the plan is going to be between your two parties? So we've had one phone call, and that was the night of the election, and, and I congratulated him on, on, the, on the campaign, and he congratulated me, and we have another meeting that's scheduled for next week. Okay. That's going to be the main meeting? That's going to be the meeting, I think, I hope. You won't need your martial arts training at that <laughs> meeting, I'm Hopefully assuming. Not. <laughs> um, talking of phone calls... Yes. And just picking up a discussion I was Should having. I sit with, back? You're whatever you like. You're just, just, I wanted to be engaged, though. But okay. okay. I'll we'll sit back, back to them. Yeah, let's see, stay up here. Okay. <laughs> For the, okay. We're, we're nice up at close and personal. We've both worn our yeah. deodorant, I hope. Um, <laughs> talking of phone calls, an issue that I raised with Ahmed Hussein uh, the blackface controversy, like global 
you know, grabbed global headlines and global attention for good reasons and bad. Um, I believe that he spoke to you on the phone about that, because I asked Ahmed Hussein about his phone call, obviously slightly different position, he's a minister in his government. What happened between the two of you when he rang you up about that? So we had a lot to talk about, about the phone call in the first place. And, and when it was offered, I didn't want my phone call to be a part of a PR campaign to try to exonerate himself from what I don't have the power to exonerate him from. It's Canadians that would decide whether they accept his first or second apology, whether they believed him or they believe there's a, a certain Mr. Trudeau they see in public and a certain Mr. Trudeau that's in private that does very different things. Uh, that's up to Canadians to continue to make that decision. And especially For me, black Canadians. Yes, absolutely. For, for racialized Canadians, black Canadians, particularly given the pernicious form of anti-black racism and how prevalent that is, it's, it's up to Canadians to make so that decision. So what did you say? That's what you told him? Or? So what, what I said is that I would not make the, the discussion public in any way because I didn't want to be used as a, as a tool to try to make up for what happened. So I, I kept the conversation private. Okay. Um, let's talk about race and racism. Your story is a... Your story is a pretty unique one. Your parents are immigrants from India. Uh, I believe your mother came first and then sponsored your dad. Is this yes, true? It's true. Your dad put out an ad saying he was looking for an Indian woman living abroad to marry him. That's or, bold. Yeah. Um, the way people rolled in the past is pretty interesting. Sometimes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Your great-grandfather was an Indian revolutionary? Yes, he was, yeah. Wow. And then you, this turban-wearing Sikh son of immigrants become leader of one of Canada's uh, four major parties at the age of 38, growing up experiencing racism, growing up experiencing, I believe, physical attacks in school because of the way you looked. Did you ever think this would be possible? Never, never. I, I, I imagined a lot of things. As a kid, I was kind of a dreamer, but I didn't imagine. If you would have asked me, I always think of my, my kid as a, my childhood self as a 10-year-old. So if I think of the 10-year-old Jagmeet, if you would have asked me, would I ever be able to run as a prime minister or what a prime minister would look like? I would never have thought myself. And in this campaign, if I can tell you one of the things that I'm so proud of is that the amount of the, many, the, the times that young kids would come up to me from so many different backgrounds and say, seeing you run for prime minister makes me feel like I can do anything. And that was amazing. So that's the positive side of it, that clearly seeing you has a positive impact, no doubt about it. Um, you've risen to the top, but a lot of people aren't happy seeing you in that position. They don't feel comfortable uh, seeing you in that position. I'm about to ask you who okay. that is. <laughs> don't worry. Um, there was a moment on the campaign trail uh, when a man in Montreal, in Quebec, told you to cut your turban off um, to look more Canadian. And he said, because in Rome, you do as the Romans do. And you responded without missing a beat, this is Canada, you can do whatever you like. <laughs> With a smile. It's a great line, but I do wonder, how do you keep your cool in situations like that? Because I would have just said, fuck off. <laughs> um, how did you go, oh, this is Canada, you can do... I mean, it's, that's why I'm not a party leader and you are, but I'm just wondering what goes through your head at times like that. <laughs> that's... that's uh, thank you for <laughs> that story. Uh, I mean, don't do that. No, no, don't, no, no, no. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't planning to. But um, it's good. You caught me off guard with that. It was funny. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so for me, a couple of things. I, I faced uh, far worse than that in my life growing up. Uh, not just once, you know, multiple yeah. times throughout my life. I faced far worse than someone giving me a suggestion of the way I should look. I faced a lot more physical or threats and then actual physical violence. So 
it wasn't hard to, to, to not keep my cool because there was a time in my life when I used to respond to, to aggression and violence with uh, my fist to defend myself. But I realized like, that wasn't going to change someone's mind. At the end of the day, if I fought someone to protect myself, sure, I, I protected myself, but I didn't win over somebody. And I realized uh, if in my position, I, I've, I've got you know, years of training as a lawyer, I, I've been a, a leader, I've been involved in politics, I have a, a platform and I can use it to hopefully win over people. And I'm thinking at the end of that conversation, that, that gentleman walked away thinking, you know, he's a nice guy, yeah. uh, confident, firm. I told him I don't agree with him. Yeah. But I feel like the goal should be for me in my yes. position. I don't think this is something that everyone can do because everyone's got a different position. But my goal is to win over the hearts and minds of people. And I know you can do that with love. You can do that with compassion and finding a shared connection. No, I'm glad you said that because some people so often misinterpret it as you're saying that the burden is on minorities to you know, win over racists and bigots. No, That's no, not it's, the case. it's my position. You're in a different and, position. Yeah, um, yeah. There was another moment like that. There was another clip of you that went viral around the world back, I think it was in 2017, when a woman came up to you at a public forum and started shouting Islamophobic abuse at you. Uh, we know you're in bed with Sharia, she said. Uh, <laughs> Sharia. Uh, we know you're in bed with the... I literally think she thought it was a person. Um, <laughs> we know... We, we know you're in bed with the Muslim Brotherhood, she said. And again, I think she thinks it's a group of guys who you're in bed with. Um, at no point, though, seriously. Which point, is not a no problem point, if someone wants at to... At no point in that whole exchange, while she's screaming and ranting abuse at you, at no point do you say, I'm not actually Muslim, you dumb racist. Why didn't you say that? You know... For for me, I, I've been, I mean, as you can imagine, probably with, as a beard and a turban person, I face a lot of Islamophobia. People can't, you know, don't, don't know the difference. And um, I've always wanted to make it clear that if I would have said, hey, I'm not, I'm not a Muslim, I would be suggesting in a way that it would have been okay to do that if I was a Muslim. And so... And, and so, I know so for me, if I just, so for me... In the face of Islamophobia, my answer has never been, nor will it ever be, I'm not a Muslim. My answer will always be that hate is wrong. Okay. And a lot of Muslims, both globally and in Canada, appreciated that stance of yours. And to be fair, it's a stance uh, that a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, Sikhs in public life who have been abused have adopted. And I, I can only speak for myself as a Muslim. It's something that I appreciate very much. And a lot of Canadian Muslim admirers of yours, I know, appreciated that. But here's the thing. That was 2017, right? Mm -hmm. Before I came here, I messaged a bunch of Muslim friends of mine in Canada, across Canada. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm interviewing Ahmed Hussein, Jagmeet Singh. What should I ask them? I'm not an expert on Canada. Mm -hmm. Literally every single Muslim friend of mine messaged back, all fans of yours, mm -hmm. people who like you, and mm -hmm. they all said, you've got to ask him about Bill 21. Mm -hmm. You've got to ask him about this very controversial, quote-unquote, religious neutrality law, which prevents civil servants, people in positions of authority, I think, from wearing religious symbols. Mm -hmm. Unlike Justin Trudeau, and the uh, immigration minister was just speaking to me about this, the Trudeau government says that they will leave open the door to intervene to prevent Quebec from carrying this out in full and maybe discriminating against Muslim women and others. Um, you've said you will not intervene. You want to win over hearts and minds, your previous answer. A lot of Canadian Muslims, do you understand why they feel kind of like Jagmeet Singh, who was their big champion, threw them under the bus on this issue? Mm. Uh, I don't want them to feel that way. And I could start off by saying I think it's horrible that the law is, is, is heinous. It's wrong. It's, it's saying that what people sometimes think in their hearts and minds that it's okay to discriminate someone they're legislating to say, yeah, it's okay. We're going to actually make a law that does that. So it's absolutely wrong. Uh, I want to be clear on two things. First off, I do have 
uh, a legal background, there is a court challenge right now. That court challenge is a very important court challenge, and I don't want to interfere with the court challenge. What Mr. Trudeau has said is that at some stage when a matter is appealed, it'll get to the Supreme Court. And at the Supreme Court stage, all prime ministers, as a matter of of status quo, as a matter of uh, fact, would uh, evaluate the law and look at it before it moves ahead. I would do that as well. But what I want to make something really clear is... Would you prosecute a case? Would the government, would the federal government take up a case against the provincial government on this issue? Yes or no? That's not the format, and that's not how it would happen. The way it would happen is the federal government would be an intervener on the case if it got to the Supreme Court level. And whether or not the Supreme Court, at the Supreme Court level, the government, the prime minister would be involved. Uh, All prime ministers, myself included, would absolutely take a look at that and see what we could do. That's something that should happen. So you're saying there's not a distinction between you and Justin Trudeau on this? No, there's not. Uh, But what there is a distinction is, every single day that I campaigned in Quebec, and I was in Quebec all the time, I was asked this question every day. And in 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 a province where... The vast majority believe it's okay to discriminate people based on, on, this, on this ground. The vast majority of Quebecers think it's okay. If that law is challenged and it is turned back, you still have a province that thought it was okay to discriminate people based on the way they look. That is not enough to fight the law. That is not the only way you can fight this type of problem. I go to Quebec and say, hey, I wear a beard and a turban, yes, uh, but I believe in the climate crisis and I want to fight it. I believe in a woman's right to choose. I believe in LGBTQ communities' rights to have same-sex that's marriage. Great. But that's changing people. So in Quebec, that's, we had one of the most popular TV Quebec shows. And you wanted to be a public defender in court. You couldn't do that wearing that turban. That's horrible. That's wrong. So what, would, what are you doing to change well, that legally? My point is this. If you've got a law that's supported by the mass majority of the, of the population of that province, yeah. and that law is struck down, it's not going to stop another law coming forward. The only way you can stop something like that from ever happening again is to change the people the way they think. Yeah, but it's and both, that's what I'm trying to do. Martin Luther King said you, you gotta, do both. You, you do change both. the law Absolutely. and you change people's lives. You got to do both. You got to do both. And right now, right now, there I mean, is a court this, challenge. You have a, there's a case of a Sikh teacher I came across who had to leave Quebec before the start of the year yeah. because she said, I want to teach and I'm I can't. Court. And she's yeah. moved to British Columbia. Yeah. yeah, it's horrible. She is someone who grew up in but Quebec. But she will say to you, while you're trying to change hearts and minds, I'm having to leave my place where I live and work. Well, she, she'd be right to say she that. Needs, yeah, she yeah. needs action now. She does. And that's why there's a court challenge right now. And so for the federal government to get in, involved, it wouldn't happen right away. It would happen in a year's time or more. So okay. right now there's a court challenge. It's happening right now. There's no reason to interfere with a court challenge that's happening right now. Once that court challenge is successful, the matter is done. If it gets to the Supreme Court, all prime ministers should look at all challenges that go to the Supreme Court. What do you say to your critics who say the reason you didn't take a stronger position on this is because you didn't want to antagonize people in Quebec and it didn't work anyways. You <laughs> lost 13 seats in Quebec. It's true. It's, it's true. We did. Yeah. Um, I, I believe in antagonizing people when you need to. You got to be willing to do that. And I took strong stances against a lot of folks, including the, the president of the United States um, in my, in, during the campaign. I believe it's important to, to fight back, but I also believe it's important to make sure you win over people. Right now, there's a court challenge. It's already happening. Uh, there would be nothing to expedite that right now. There's no legal framework to do that. While the court challenge is happening, I don't want to sit back on my hands. I'm going to Quebec and telling people it's wrong. Fine. So you're saying it's wrong. One of the ways to win hearts and minds to defeat racism is to call racism racism, to call out what it is. Mm. I asked the immigration minister if he believes that the bill is driven by Islamophobia. Do you believe Islamophobia is the or a driving force behind Bill 21? Well, let's break it down. It's certainly discriminatory. It's certainly discriminatory and it's going to disproportionately impact Muslims. Absolutely. So it's uh, a form of discrimination 
and it's specifically targeting people predominantly who are Muslim that are going to be most impacted, as well as Sikhs and, and Jewish people. Where, what's the, the foundation behind it? Um, in Quebec, a part of it is there's a, a backlash against religion. Um, there's certainly uh, Islamophobia that has impacted decisions that people make. And whether that was a driving force, I don't know. But Islamophobia is, is very alive and well across Canada. It's something we've got to fight. And it's something that has influenced our society for the negative, And we've got to fight it. And do you think you're winning the battle against racism, against Islamophobia in Canada right now? Hate crimes fell this year for the first time after five years of consecutive rises. I think that there's a lot more to do. And I think on this point of of hate crime, one, one thing that's really important, I think that's not been talked about, the reason why I think that people can be exploited to target people based on the way they look is has a lot to do with economic inequality. When people are poor, when people are struggling, and they can't find housing, they can't pay their bills, they can't pay for the medication, and someone comes along and says, you know what, you know who's to blame? Those new Canadians, those immigrants, those refugees, they're stealing your jobs. That can happen in a context when people are struggling. But when there is economic justice, when we actually make sure housing is affordable, when we tackle the inequality, it takes away the argument that it's used to exploit people. So I think economic justice and inequality are the root causes of a lot of the division that happen in society. We're almost out of time. We're almost out of time, but you mentioned new Canadians. Um, Let's talk something I wanted to bring up in the previous interview, we ran out of time, but we do need to bring it up. Let's talk about indigenous communities, First Nations, who still face so much discrimination, racism, marginalization. What is the duty of Canada's leaders towards First Nation communities, actual concrete, demonstrable responsibilities? Well, first off, uh, clean drinking water. That, that should be a basic human right. The fact that in 2019 it isn't, and the fact that with the wealth and the technology that we have, that the vast number of indigenous communities that don't have clean drinking water is a shame. Uh, access to equal, uh, equal access to funding, education, child welfare. Right now, as we speak, uh, Minister Hussain's government, Mr. Trudeau, is appealing a human rights tribunal decision that said that indigenous kids should get equal funding. And one of the things I called on Mr. Trudeau to do just last week is drop the appeal. Basic Isn't there an argument that we support the compensation, we just don't agree with the timeline? There's no argument that when the Human Rights Tribunal puts forward a a well-founded argument that Indigenous kids deserve equal funding and this is the way to achieve it, uh, that shouldn't be appealed. That should be something that governments say, we are going to do whatever it takes to make sure that kids get equal funding. That's just a starting point for justice. It's easy to criticize the government. What about the public, the electorate? Obviously, you're a politician. You can't kind of call out voters. But Canadian society as a whole, the Canadian public at large, do they understand the responsibilities that they have and the duties and obligations they have towards Indigenous communities? I think they do. I think a lot of Canadians, you heard some applause in the, in the room today, Canadians get that it's, it's wrong that the first people of this land have faced historic injustice, continue to face injustice, And I think you'll find that there's a consensus that Canadians believe the first people of this land deserve equality, deserve justice, deserve dignity. And those are basic things that we should be able to deliver. Let's say there's another election in a couple of years. And I believe minority Canadian governments have a two-year average tenure. You've done your research. A little bit, a little bit. What will a Jagmeet Singh-led NDP do differently 
in a couple of years to prevent a rerun of 2019 where you run a good campaign but don't get a good result? What lessons have you learned? Hopefully raise a lot more money. Because uh, <laughs> I say that in jest, but I'm serious. We had a great uh, campaign and a lot of momentum, a lot of folks that were excited. And then I mentioned that last week, um, just to give you a, a framework, we spent $9 million in the campaign and uh, both other parties spent close to $30 million. So we were outspent uh, tremendously, massively. And on the last week, the other parties probably spent uh, our entire budget in the last week alone on advertising. And we couldn't get our message out there in the last week. And I think that hurt folks. Uh, that uh, I take that responsibility in the sense that I want to make sure Canadians can dream big, they can believe that they don't have to settle for less. And, and much, I know I can do that. How much... You were hugely popular and you brought lots of people to the party. But as I said, you're also divisive in the eyes of some people. People who say, well, we're not comfortable with someone who looks like that running for prime minister in places like Quebec. Even some, one of your own MPs, I believe, said you inflamed certain tensions uh, amongst certain right-wing voters. What do you do about that? That's not something you can fix, overnight at least. Well, I would say, and this is what I would, I would say, and I would say it again and again, is that you know, maybe I face some challenges because of the way I looked. And the way I look, I continue to face challenges. But it's not different from a lot of people that face challenges based on their gender. I know a lot of my dear friends face challenges in the workplace and advancement because of their gender. Come to the I US, know. they still never elected a female president. There you go, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, we, don't, we haven't really either. Uh, we, had a, we had a female prime minister, but she yeah, wasn't elected. So we've got a long way to go to. But um, there's people that are, they face barriers because of the color of their skin, because of their sexuality, because of their uh, many things that determine who they are. And I hope people see in me someone that's experienced some of that. And believe me when I say I'm committed to building a country where people are celebrated and no one faces barriers for who they are. And if between now and the next election, Andrew Scheer, the leader of Canada's Conservatives, which won the popular vote last month. Wow. Didn't win, didn't win the popular vote at hot dogs. Um, <laughs> If he, if he comes to you and says, Jagmi, let's do a deal. Let's together try and bring down this liberal government. Would you be open to that? No. Never. No, no. Under no circumstances could you see the NDP and the Conservatives working together to end Justin Trudeau's time in office. The thing is, is that the, the Conservatives, as they've put out their values, they've, especially with Mr. Scheer, he's not been clear on his, on his position for women's right to choose. On uh, the LGBTQ community, he has made it very clear in his platform that he would cut services, uh, all the opposite to what I believe in. So I don't see any circumstance where I could work with the Conservatives now. We'll have to leave it there. Jagmeet Singh, thank you for joining me on Deconstructed. And thank you... Thank you, everyone in Toronto, here at the Hot Docs Podcast Festival. I love doing Deconstructed here. We should do it more often. Thank you so much. Good night. That's our show. And before we go, a special shout-out to 12-year-old Hamza, who I met in Seattle last weekend, and who says he listens to Deconstructed every single week. Thank you very much, Hamza. And thank you to you all for listening. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. 
and I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.